So last week, if you're here with us, we want to give a little bit of a, a reminder of where we were last week. Uh, for those of you who weren't with us and those of you online who weren't able to catch it, last week we were able to talk about the purpose, the producer, and the prophets when it comes to the book of Hebrews. So that's what we talked about last week. And remember, if you were here, we talked about when it comes to the purpose, there's a very specific purpose that the author of Hebrews has. Obviously, he's, like we talked about last week, he's going to compare the Old Testament, the old law, to the new law and its counterpart in the new law, right? And he's going to compare and at the end of the day discover that there is no comparison to be made. The new law, the new covenant, Jesus is better, right? So that's the purpose we described last week. And we understand that the law of Christ, the new covenant, uh, the, the, the way, right, as the New Testament describes it, is obviously better and greater than and superior to the law of Moses, the old covenant and the old way. And uh, also the purpose of the book of Hebrews, I believe, uh, there are two things. Maybe even both of these things is what the author is trying to do. Number one, he's trying to convince. He's trying to convince those who have not left Judaism yet, right? Who are still Jewish people following the old law. He's trying to convince them, listen, this is what you're missing out on. The new law, the new covenant, Jesus Christ is better. And you, you, you need to make the decision to change. So number one, he's trying to convince this audience that they need to become Christians. And number two, he's trying to convict this audience. What's he trying to convict them of? He's trying to convict those individuals who maybe have left Judaism but are questioning it. Did I make the right choice? Did I make the right decision? I missed my old traditions. He's trying to convict them. Listen, you made the right choice by becoming a Christian. And so the book of Hebrews provides these same exact two purposes today, does it not? To us today, we have the same purpose of reading the book of Hebrews. It should do the same thing to us today as it did the original audience. It should both convince and convict us today. First of all, it should convince those who have not become Christians, hey, this is what you're missing out on. It should convince those who have not decided to become a follower of Christ, listen, this is a great life, like we talked about last week. This is a better life than any life under the sun, right? And then secondly, it should convict those who have become Christians. If you have become a Christian, if you have become a follower of God, the book of Hebrews should convict you in the knowledge that, yeah, I made the right choice. This is the greatest life I could possibly have. And that's what the book of Hebrews can do for us today as well. Both convincing and convicting. And last week we also talked about the producer of the book, right? When it comes to the producer of the book, we can go with what the church father, the patristic father said, Origen, he says, only God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. And last week we, we dived into uh, the external, the internal evidence of all the different options there are. Paul, Luke, 
uh, uh, Barnabas, uh, Apollos, and, and all the different options out there among scholarship and academia, right? But at the end of the day, we had to say, guess who wrote this book? The Holy Spirit. God. God is the author of this book. There is no man that we can attach it to uh, due to our current knowledge of it. When it comes to the book of Hebrews, God is the one who breathed it out, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. This word inspiration, theopneustos in the Greek, is God breathed. God breathed the book of Hebrews out. And it's evident that it is from God but we cannot attribute it to any man. It could have been by the hand of Paul. It definitely could have been by the hand of Luke. It could have been through the hand of any of the other ones that we mentioned and talked about last week. And at the end of the day, we can investigate all this external and internal evidence, and at the end of the day, we'll never know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews other than the Holy Spirit. Lastly, last week, we talked about the prophets and how Jesus is better than the prophets. And that was from verses 1 through 3 of the book of Hebrews. We learned that Jesus is better than the prophets. We talked about why He is better than the prophets. We talked about what that would have meant to the original audience. And we talked about what it should mean to us today. And with that, we are ready to talk about what we're going to be talking about tonight. And that... Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 1 for a while, and we're also going to cover chapter 2, which is a monumental task. But please bear with me as we dive into this together. We're going to be starting in verse 4 of chapter 1 as we get started tonight. Verse 4 of chapter 1. As we start this discussion, it's obviously going to be about how Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the angels. And that's what we're going to be covering tonight as we start in verse 4 in a minute, how Jesus is better than the angels. Really, this is going to, as the screen suggests, go all the way to, through chapter 2. This is the discussion that the writer of Hebrews is trying to engage in in this big, lengthy section of his epistle. But before we even talk about what the, what the verse says or what the chapter says, we have to understand why in the world are we talking about angels? Why in the world are, 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 are we diving into a conversation about angels? You know how many other New Testament books really dive into the discussion of angels? I mean, not many. Not, not, not many passages and not many lengthy chapters are all about angels, right? What's going on in this, in this book? What's going on? Why would he start off this way? Why would he start off with a lengthy discussion of angels is the question. And we have to understand why is the author of Hebrews, why is he going there? We've got to understand a little bit of the background behind a Jewish culture. Behind the Jewish culture of why he would start talking about angels. Why would he need to address angels? Why, why, why was this a problem? Why would he need to tell us how Jesus measures up to the angels? You know, these are questions that, that we should all have as we go into this text is, what's going on? I mean, you look at chapter 1 without even reading it, you see that there are a lot of quotations 
from Scripture, almost the whole thing is just quotation. So what's going on? Why is the writer of Hebrews talking so much about angels? Uh, doesn't it seem a bit weird to you? You know, when we look at the rest of the book of Hebrews, last week we talked about where we're going in our study. We can see that he's going he's to wind up talking about Moses. That makes a lot of sense, right? If you're going to compare the old law to the new law, who are you going to have to talk about? Well, you're going to have to talk about Moses. Well, you're going to have to talk about Joshua. Well, you're going to have to talk about the high priesthood, right? You're going to have to talk about the sanctuary of the Old Testament, the covenant of the Old Testament, the sacrifice of the Old Testament. You're going to have to talk about all the different things that he talked about in the rest of the book. But chapter 1 and 2, we're going to be talking about angels. I mean, the question is, what do angels have to do with the old law? What role did they play? What significance do they have for him to dedicate a chapter and a half of on it? That's the questions we're going to talk about as we dive in today. What is this significance to first century Jews? Uh, why is there a need for this? And we have to lay this foundation uh, to figure out what role angels played in the lives of a first century Jewish culture. And to compare it to Christ we're going to have to understand what in the world's going on, right? So we, get, we need to go ahead and do that by understanding the background of angels throughout the Bible. And that is, angels were there in the garden, were they not? In the garden, when they were kicked out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24, it says that God placed angels at the entryway of the garden, blocking them from being able to come back into the garden, right? So there they were at the beginning. Secondly, we know angels were in the lives of the patriarchs, right? If you were to turn to Genesis chapter 18, you could find that it was an angel who went to Sarah and said, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son in, in, in your old age. And what does she do, right? She laughs. Well, what happens later on in that chapter, in the next chapter? Angels are obviously apparent and obviously present in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It, it, it was angels who, who were there scouting it out. It was angels who, who, who were there to try to save Lot, right? And we obviously see that they were involved in the life of the patriarchs. And, and next we see that they're obviously involved in the law of Moses. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2, you can see that it was angels who helped mediate the law. What does Stephen say in Acts chapter 7 and verse 53? One of the last things he said, he's trying to talk to the Jewish Sanhedrin, and what does he say? He says, having received the law from the direction of angels and have not kept it. What's going on? Why, why do we not talk about the, the angels' involvement in the old law, in the old covenant, right? But it's obviously there. It's obviously there, and we may not have known that before. But angels helped mediate the law of Moses. What else do we know about angels? Well, we also know that angels are very powerful beings, right? When it comes to angels, angels are, have always, in, in my mind, been surrounded by great mystery. There, there, there's, there's great mystery involved with angels. 
there's not really much explanation as to what their origin is or how they operate, right? They sort of just show up, right? They show up as, as these men in white robes or they show up out of nowhere and there's, there's these angels and guess what happens after they're done? They're gone. They're disappeared. There's a, there's a bit of a mystery about angels in the Bible, in my opinion. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of confusion and that plays a role in the Jewish culture. Because they would come, they would show up, and, and they would do these miraculous things. They would do these great, powerful things in front of them. And just like that, they were gone. What happens in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 35? One angel kills 185,000 people. One angel is able to kill 185,000 Assyrians. And what happens after he's finished? He's gone. And what's left? All the corpses, right? You can go and turn to that and read that real quick. It's an amazing story. It's powerful. There's immense power behind the things that the angels are able to do. And so when we look at this, we have to understand this is just one of the instances of power displayed by an angel in the Old Testament. There are many others all throughout the Old Testament that we could look at. Next, we can see that angels were in fact worshipped. Did you know that? There were some that even worshipped the angels. Now, this wasn't right before God, but... This happened, and you might be sitting there thinking, well, Ben, I mean, how do you know that? How do you know they worshipped angels? Well, because Colossians 2 and verse 18 explicitly says that there were some who worshipped angels. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18 says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, and worship of angels. That's what Paul said, that there were some who were worshiping angels. Why is this going on, right? Well, what would happen, I believe, is that these angels would come and do this fantastic, awesome, all-striking thing, and they would leave, and then everyone would be talking about it, right? We know in the old law that it was passed, the, the law was passed orally a lot from generation to generation. And what happens when you go fishing today? Right? When you go fishing today, you catch a fish this big, but then you tell your wife it was this big, and then you tell your son it was this big, and then you tell your grandson, son, I caught the biggest fish in the whole entire earth, and I, I let it go. That's just how good of a person I am. Right? You, 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 you embellish the story, and I'm not saying that the Scriptures embellish the stories, but I am saying in the Jewish culture, they would embellish the stories of the angels and the angels' involvement in their life. And, and, and it would blow it out of proportion sometimes to the point that they were these mythical creatures, not even real. Right? They were these fantastical creatures. And so that's why we see the worship of angels. That's why we see such a heavy involvement of angels in the Jewish culture. And lastly, we also know that the angels were revered, that they were respected in the Jewish culture. How do we know that? Well, what, is, what does Paul say in Galatians chapter 1? In Galatians chapter 1, he says that 
if we or, a, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Right? Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. If we or an angel from heaven come and preach... Well, does that, do you think that angels were coming down and actually preaching and actually contradicting what Paul was saying? I believe that he's saying... He, I think it's because he understood that angels were respected. Angels were revered. Angels were such a heavy part of the Jewish culture that he says, listen, even if these people who you respect, even if these people who you revere, if they show up at your door and they try to teach you something different than what we have taught you, let him be accursed. Such an interesting thing, such an interesting uh, uh, study to start to look at the angel's impact in the life of a first century Jewish culture. Even if we, we, we look back and we understand everything that's going on with angels, we have to understand, as the writer of Hebrews is going to start talking about, they don't compare to Jesus. You know, one of the commentaries that I was, I was studying with when it talks about this, it says the underlying issue being addressed in this section, indeed a crucial matter throughout the whole of Hebrews, is not that the readers find too much glory in angels, but that they find too little of it in Jesus. What a great thought that is. What so true it is that it's not that they maybe thought too much of the angels, but it's that they thought so little of Jesus. How sad of a state is that? That he was belittled even lower than the esteem of an angel. And that's where we're going to start with our text tonight in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, if you're already there, we'll go ahead and start reading. Notice we've just started, we've just stopped where we stopped last week in how Jesus is better than the prophets. In verse 4, he's going to say, having become so much better than, right? So much better than the angels, as he has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. And here we see that the author of Hebrews is, is establishing right up front, very clear, blatantly, that Jesus is not only the one in verses 1 through 3, He's not only the one who has become heir of all things. He's not only the one through whom the worlds were made. He's not only the one who upholds all things by the word of His power. He's not only the one who purged our sins, who is sitting down at the right hand of the majesty. Not only is He all those things in verses 1 through 3, guess what else He is? Verse 4, He is so much better than the angels. Why? Why is Jesus better than the angels? You know, if he's going to make a comment like this, he's going to have to back it up, is he not? He's going to have to back it up, and what does he do in the next few verses? He does just that, right? The writer of Hebrews is going to back up his claim with the greatest tool at his disposal. And what is that? The Bible. The greatest tool at anyone's disposal in a conversation about faith is the Bible. And I think there's maybe a little bitty uh, tidbit that could be learned from that. 
that if we're going to engage in any study about the Bible or any discussion about faith, why don't we just use the Bible as a tool to aid us, to help us in that pursuit? That's exactly what he's going to do in the rest of chapter 1. And if you look at your Bibles, in the rest of the whole chapter, he's going to make all these Old Testament quotations. In the next 11 verses, we're going to read nine Old Testament citations, quotations. You know, many times, uh, people out in the world, uh, you you study with someone, uh, you try to stand up for what's right, and you tell them, I don't do this, I don't do that, because uh, I'm a Christian, and here's a verse, why? What are they going to call you? Oh, you're just a Bible thumper, right? Oh, you're just a Bible thumper. You're just beating me over the head with the Bible, right? Well, maybe the writer of Hebrews is guilty of that a little bit too, right? He's going to, for the next 11 verses, he's just going to talk and talk and talk and show and show and show what the Scriptures say about Jesus comparing, Jesus' comparison to the angels. So let's go ahead and look at why Jesus is better than the angels. Verse 5 through 14, we're going to read real quick. It says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? You know, what, a, what, a, what an amazing section of Scripture we have here, just constantly comparing uh, Jesus and the angels, and we have many quotations from the Old Testament. Most all of them are from Psalms. And what we have here is the writer of Hebrews is saying, but to which of any of the angels has, has God ever said this? And then he says, but he said this about Jesus. And what we're going to have is we're going to have all these Old Testament quotations. The word is reappropriated. All these Old Testament verses have been reappropriated to fit Jesus. To apply to Jesus. To, to, to show how Jesus fits these verses. And what do we see about this first one in verse 5? In verse 5, we see that Jesus is better than, greater than, superior to the angels because He has a greater name than they have. Jesus has a greater name than any of the angels in verse 5. It says, For which the angels he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me as a 
Son. You know, Jesus is the only Son of God. Now, angels are referred to as sons of God. We are also referred to as sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, right? But what do I mean by the only Son? If you look at John chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You know what this only begotten is? It comes from a Greek word, monogenes. If you split those words up, some people like to do that. Mono means only, genes means begotten. Only begotten. But guess what the better translation is? His unique Son. His only Son. There is not a plurality of these. This is one. It is only one. It, there is only one of these ever. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, when he is baptized, what does, Jesus, what does God say from the heavens? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What does he say on the Mount of Transfiguration in, John, in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5? He yet again says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The angels are not given this name. They are not monogenes. They are not only begotten. They are not begotten of God. They are created by God. Jesus is the Son of God. And just look at the firstborn language in verse 6, right? But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, do you think this is talking about Jesus literally being born? No, there's a lot more to it than that. In fact, when he says the firstborn in verse 6, he's not talking about birth. He's not talking about Matthew 1 and, and, and Mary and Joseph and all the things going on. He's not talking about that. By, by saying Jesus is the firstborn, he's trying to establish Jesus' preeminence. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, it says that Jesus has the preeminence. In fact, if you want to look into that a little bit more, David is called the firstborn in Psalm chapter 89 and verse 27. Was David the firstborn of his family? King David, was he the firstborn? No. He had many brothers, right? He was the runt. But he calls him the firstborn because he was exalted, right? He was exalted above all his other brothers to the state of king. So same, the same way Jesus has been exalted to the state above all others. So that's what's happening in verse 5. Jesus has been given a greater name. What's happening in verse 6? It says, let all the angels of God worship him. Well, what's happening in verse 6? Jesus is obviously better than, greater than, superior to the angels because they worship Him. The angels worship Jesus. You know what's obvious about that one? Who's better? The person worshiping or the person being worshipped? Who's better then? It's obviously the person being worshipped. And so the writer of Hebrews says, listen, the angels are the ones who are worshipping Him. The angels are the ones throughout all the histories who have been worshipping Jesus. Not the other way around. So obviously Jesus is better than the angels. Well, let's continue. What's going on in verse 7? In verse 7, he's saying Jesus is served by the angels who makes His angel spirits and His ministers a flame of fire. 
the angels minister on the behalf, on the behest of Jesus. In fact, that's exactly why angels were created in the first place. For the purpose of serving. They serve, they minister, they are messengers of and whatever the will of God tells them to do. Angels are creatures, not creators, just like us. We are creatures, not the creator. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator. What does verse 2 say of chapter 1? Whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds. Jesus is the creator. The angels are the created. What does it say in John chapter 1 and verse 3? John chapter 1 and verse 3 says that Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus Christ is the creator and the angels are the created. Next we're going to see in verses 8 and 9 that Jesus is God. You know, a lot of times we look at Scripture, we look at the Bible, and we're talking about this, and when we look at Jesus, we think, well, He's a little bit less than the Father, right? Here's the hierarchy. It goes the Holy Spirit, it goes Jesus, and then it goes the Father. Because the Father is way more powerful than the... Is that how the Bible really would establish Jesus? No. They're all equal, right? They are all equal... And they are all one. And so Jesus is God the Father, and God the Father is Jesus the Son. And the same can be said about the Spirit. How do we know Jesus is God? Well, what does He say in verses 8 and 9? Your throne, O God, is forever. This is an Old Testament passage that's now being reappropriated, retold about Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, this same thing that was said about God is true about Jesus. Jesus is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So that's what's going on in verse 9. What is, this, what is this phraseology about a scepter? What is a scepter? Who, who has the scepter? The king, right? We look at the story of Esther, and, you know, if he, if he puts out that scepter, she's going to live, right? Jesus has been given the scepter. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the supreme leader. Jesus is God, is what the Hebrews writer is going to say in verses 8 and 9. Next, he's going to say, Jesus is creator. We've talked a little bit about this, but I guess the point wasn't good enough, so he made it again. In verse 10, he says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. When he says the heavens are the work of your hands, what is he trying to say about Jesus? Who is in the heavens? The angels. And so when he says the heavens are the work of your hands, he is saying that Jesus made the angels. That Jesus made the heavens. And they are the work of his hands. Jesus was in 
the beginning, as we've already talked about. And then what's he going to talk about in verses 11 and 12? It says, They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. He's saying Jesus is eternal. You know, we've talked about this a little bit in my, in my lesson I did a few months ago on the adversary, right? The difference between everlasting and eternal. Who is an everlasting being? We're everlasting. The angels are everlasting. But who's eternal? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Eternal means there was no beginning and there is no ending. Jesus is eternal. And that's exactly what he's going to say in this passage right here. We need to move on here. Uh, Jesus is Lord, verses 13 and 14. This is how he's going to end out the chapter. He's going to say Jesus is Lord. The word Lord in Greek is kurios. Jesus is Lord because of what? Verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent to forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? What's he trying to say? Jesus has been seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This idea of being seated... I'm seated at night, but it doesn't make me, you know, it doesn't exalt me like it would in the context of the throne room of God. You know what the angels are doing in the throne room of God? They're standing, they're waiting. They're waiting to be told what to do to go here or there by God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. In fact, we can see that uh, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 19, Gabriel is said to have been standing in the presence of God. He says, I'm the one who stands in the presence of God. Well, guess who's not standing? Jesus. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does this indicate? This indicates that His work is complete. That the work of Jesus is complete. That He is seated. That He is resting. That He is exalted above all others. And then lastly, this verse 14, boy, this is one of the popular ones to talk about. Ministering spirits sent forth, and what's going on with its angels? Well, it's easy to understand when you look at the whole context of what's going on. He's trying to say, are they, are, are angels not all ministering spirits? The same way we compared who is better, the one being worshipped or the one worshipping? We can compare this right here in verse 14. Which one's better? The one who sends, to out, sends out to minister or the ones who's ministering? Obviously, the ones who are ministering are lesser than the ones who are sending out to minister. What he's saying is Jesus is the one who sends these spirits out, these angels, to minister. And so they're obviously and inherently less than Jesus. Jesus is the one that offers the salvation for which they are sent out. Does that make sense? So we see as, as we close out this chapter that Jesus is better than the angels because He's been given a greater name than them. 
He's better than angels because He is worshipped by them. He is served by them. He is God. He is Creator. He is eternal. He is Lord. And that is why Jesus is better than, superior to, greater than the angels. And that ends chapter 1. So chapter 1 is going to give us the, the, the biblical foundation as to why Jesus is better than the angels. And chapter 2 is going to perhaps give us the theological foundation as to why Jesus is better than the angels. What's the difference? Biblical is the book, chapter, verse, right? We talk about it all the time. What's the book, chapter, verse? Well, he just gave it. The theological is going to be the principles. It's going to be the statements, the fundamental truths about Jesus that puts him above the angels. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. It says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and who was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. This is how he starts out this chapter, by talking about not drifting from the truth. Not drifting away from the things which we have heard. There's this conviction, right? He's trying to convict them. Don't drift. Don't drift away from the things which you have heard because, listen, if the, if the word that was confirmed, that was steadfast by the angels, what's he talking about there? What was the word that was spoken through angels? We've already talked about it, right? It was the Old Testament. The old law was mediated by the angels. It proved steadfast. What does this steadfast mean? Well, proved steadfast means binding. If the old law was binding and it was mediated by those who are less than Jesus, how much more so should the new law be binding? You see what he's doing there? He's trying to say the new law is all the more binding than the old law was. And we know how bound to the old law the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Jewish culture was, right? Well, he's trying to say, listen, the new law should be all the more bound to your hearts, bound to your mind, bound to your hands, and all the things that the old law was, right? That's what he's trying to say. If the old law had proved steadfast, how shall we escape and neglect so great a salvation? That's how he's going to start out this chapter. Because of the biblical foundation of Jesus being better than the angels, we can see that the message offered by angels cannot be superior to the message offered by Christ. Because everything about Christ is obviously superior than everything about the angels. Jesus offers a more excellent and a more uh, uh, awesome salvation. How shall we then neglect so great a salvation? Right? This salvation is offered to Christians. So there you have it, right? That's the end of the conversation. The writer of the book of Hebrews has obviously slammed the door shut on any angel ever being better than Jesus 
right? So he's going to start talking about something else. No. You know, the, the, whoever the writer was, he wasn't done yet. He's like me, right? You think it's over, and then it is not, right? He continues to talk about how Jesus is better than the angels in the rest of this chapter. You know, it might be likely that he thought that they would not agree with this. You know, sometimes we keep on going because we don't think you get it yet. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews does. He, he, he's going to try to fully and 100% prove that Jesus is better than the angels. You know, some people believe in Jewish culture, even today, that the, the fact that Jesus became a human, the fact that Jesus became a, a human automatically disqualifies him from being as good as an angel because what are angels? They're obviously a little bit more powerful than humans, right? So he became a human, so there's no way he could be an angel. There's no way he could be on the equal status of an angel. That's what people in Jewish culture would say. There's no way he could be superior to angels if he was inherently made as a human. Well, what the writer of Hebrews is going to do in the rest of this chapter is prove that he could be a human and still be better and superior to the angels. That's what he's going to do in the rest of this chapter. Let's start in verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all the things put under him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. What a powerful passage. The Father has not put the world to come, the world of which he was speaking of, into the subjection of angels. Who has he put it under? Jesus. He didn't give it to the angels. Even though they are more excellent than us, they can do a lot more things than we can. They can take out 105,000 people in a night with one of them. He didn't give the subjection to them. In the world to come, the subjection is given only to Christ. What does Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 say? Jesus. Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me. All authority has been given unto me. And then he gives us the Great Commission. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, there's another statement that shows that Jesus has been given the name that's above all names. Not the angels. And some in the Jewish culture would contend that Jesus, being a man, disqualifies him from being God or being an angel. But the writer of Hebrews is going to debate the entire opposite. That it is because he became a man that he is exalted above all others. It's because he took the form of a man that he is able to be exalted above all other names. That's what the writer of Hebrews is going to do. Let's look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. 
You know, this might be one of the greatest evangelistic verses in all the Bible. Because we see in verse 9 that, that he was able and willing to suffer death. He was able to taste death for everyone. And why did he do it? Verse 10, so that he might bring many sons to glory. And because he has brought many sons to glory, guess what he's brought them to? And what he's brought them as? He has brought them as the captain. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. What an amazing thought that is. Jesus was willing to taste death, willing to suffer, and because of that he's been crowned with glory, verse 9 says. But he didn't just stay there. He went out and brought many sons to glory. What a lesson that is for us tonight. Verses 11 and 13. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children of whom God has given me. What's he trying to say in this passage? Well, he's trying to say that we, followers of God, Christians today, guess who our brother is? Jesus. You know, often we call each other brother and sister, right? I'll go up to, to Brother Lyle and I'll say, How's it going, brother? Guess who else we can call our brother? Jesus. Wow, look at the verse again. Verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We are Jesus' brethren. What an amazing thought that is. What an encouraging thing to think about, us being the brothers and the sisters of the Lord. You know why? Because the same, the, the one who sanctifies is the same as the one who's been sanctified. Once you've been set apart, you're on equal status. Because of the blood of Jesus, we've been given the same perfection that Jesus has. Do we believe that? When we've been given the blood of Jesus and it's taken away our sin, do we believe that we are just as pure as white as snow as Jesus is? That's hard to admit. It's hard to say, yes, I'm just as pure as Jesus. But if you don't believe that, you don't understand what the blood of Jesus does. The blood of Jesus removes, it blots out, it purges. What is verse 1 or verse uh, 3? He himself has purged our sins. Jesus has done that. He's able to make us His brethren. He's able to sanctify us. And because of that, we are to sing praises in the midst of the assembly. We are to put our trust in Him, right? That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And because He has shared in our suffering, guess what we get to share in? His glory. Because Jesus has suffered, because He has shared in, 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 the, in humanity's struggle and humanity's suffering, we get to share with Him in His glory. I told you the, the book of Hebrews is going to leave you happy. It's going to leave you with a smile on your face because you see that the life of a Christian is better. 
because everyone else doesn't have that promise. Everyone else doesn't have the, the purging of sins. Everyone else doesn't have this relationship with the Creator, with the God, with the Lord, with Jesus, who is better than. Let's go ahead and uh, read verses 14 through 18, the rest of the chapter. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power over death, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he is to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. You see here in this passage we see that Jesus is the one who shared in our flesh and blood. He shared in our flesh and blood so that He could defeat death, right? So that He could defeat the one who holds the power over death. Who is that? The devil. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. Not only does Jesus defeat, not only does Jesus destroy, guess what else He does? He delivers. He delivers us from the bondage of it all. Verse 15, He releases those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He has released us. He has delivered us. Can you say the same of angels? No. Can you say the same of any other man? No. Can you say the same of any other man-made God or idol? No. Jesus Christ is the one who did it. Jesus Christ is the one who has delivered us. You know, to do this, to deliver us, to destroy, to defeat, guess what he had to do? Verse 16. He does not give aid to the angels. I don't know what the other translations say, but you know what this giving aid means? It means taking on the form of, taking on the nature of. The Hebrews writer says that Jesus did not take on the form of angels to do it. He took on the form of the seed of Abraham, which is who? Mankind. That's who He took the form of in order to accomplish this. Jesus took on the form of the people that He was redeeming. He wasn't redeeming angels. He was redeeming us, so He took on our form. Because of this, we're told that He, he is the one that can be merciful. He is the one who can be faithful. He is the one who can be high priest. He is the one who can be the propitiation as the verse 17 says. He is the one who can understand temptation because he was tempted, it says. All of that is to say that there is not a single angel who can claim any of these things. There's not a single angel who is comparable to at all to Jesus. As Peter would say, nor is there any salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. The writer of Hebrews is saying is, did the angels save you? Has an angel come and sacrificed them, their life for you? Has an angel come and, and, and tasted death and, and tasted suffering? 
No. But Jesus has. And because of that, God has exalted him above all other names. Since there is no other name through which we can be saved by, we have to be subject to the name which saves us. Christ. That's the message of Hebrews 1 and 2. So there you have it, right? There you have it. Jesus is better than the angels. Wow. Wow, Ben, he really got that Jewish audience that time, didn't he? Well, he really hurt them good, didn't he? He really stepped on their toes. Where I'm from, they call it giving them a haircut, right? Well, he gave them a haircut. You know, sometimes I hope, I hope we don't go into God's Word. I hope we don't go into the Scriptures. I hope we don't go into study hoping to watch other people get told. I hope we don't open up the Scriptures and, and open up the Bible to see ways that, that we can tell other people how they're wrong. I hope we don't weaponize the Bible that way. I hope we're not excited to watch people get destroyed, right, by the Hebrews writer or all the different things that he talked about with angels. Tonight I want to ask you, what does this mean to you? How does this apply to your life? What can you take away from this? You might be sitting here thinking, I don't think a thing about angels. I don't, I, I've, been, I've been disengaged since you started. Well, I hope that's not the case because you've missed a lot. And we're going to look at just how much you've missed real quick. I hope we go to God's Word to see how we can better ourselves. How we can better me. How you can better you. And that's exactly what we're going to do for a couple minutes. Give me a couple minutes. How does the message matter to me tonight? How does this message matter to me tonight? How does the message of Jesus being better than the angels, the message of chapters 1, verses 4 through 2, verse 18, how does this matter to me tonight? The one question is, is Christ sovereign in your life? What does the word sovereign mean? The long one, I didn't spell it right the first time I wrote it. Sovereign means one who possesses supreme power and authority over. Most exalted. Is Jesus the one who is sovereign in your life? The ultimate message being conveyed in our study tonight is there, there is not one thing, there is not one person who should be placed at the level of Christ. There is nothing that has not been put under His feet into the subjection of Him. There is nothing that has not been placed at His command. According to the book of Hebrews. But is that true? According to the life that you're living. Is Christ sovereign in your life? I hope that's the main question you take away tonight. Because if He's not, you need to get it fixed. But that's not the only message in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 2, and verse 18. If you look back, just to look, glance over, verse 3 of chapter 2. Are you guilty of neglecting so great a salvation? Some of us have been neglecting the great gift of salvation we've been given. And we've drifted away. 
just as the Hebrews writer talks about. Chapter 1 and verse 8, if we were to look back at that, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter. Have we given the scepter to someone or something else in our life? If you were to look back at chapter 2 and verse 9, are we appreciative of the fact that He suffered, the fact that He suffered and tasted death on our behalf? Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. Are we guilty of not bringing many sons to glory? Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Do we declare the greatness of Christ? Do we sing the praises of Him who has brought us to this sanctification? Verse 13, do we put our trust? Verse 15, do we stay released after, God, after Jesus has released us? Or do we go back to that bondage that we were under before? Verse 18, do we allow Christ to aid us in our temptation? Or do we try to face it alone? See, there is so much to be learned in these few verses. And I hope that it's, it's been beneficial to you. It's definitely been beneficial to me. The fact that Jesus is better than the angels is so true. But, guess who, guess who else he's better than? He's better than any idol, anything, or anyone that you've been replacing him with and that I've been replacing him with. I want to thank you for your attention tonight and uh, sticking with me. Uh, next week we're going to be discussing how Jesus is better than Moses. What a great lesson that's going to be from God's Word. And with that, we're going to ask Noah Strickland to come up and lead us.